I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody. Merry Christmas and welcome to our podcast today. Obviously, we are headed in to look at one of our Christmas narratives. And today we are going to talk about Luke chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. 1 through 20. 1 through 20. Okay, yeah, we're going to yeah. include verse 1. Yeah. So um, it's a little bit longer, I think, than the lectionary actually um, actually designates. But um, I think you'll see why when Alan starts to share it with us. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson for Christmas Sunday is one of the only two gospel readings in the three-year cycle of the Revised Common Lectionary that actually relates to the birth of Jesus. This and John 1, 1 through 18, and every in all three cycles, these are the only two gospel readings that they mm -hmm. provide. And, and perhaps you could say it is, only, it is the only true narrative of the nativity or birth of Jesus, although Matthew does speak of the birth of Jesus. It's sort of an afterthought in the story of Joseph's dream and the fact that Joseph obeys the dream. Mm -hmm. now, and, and the passage begins really in chapter 2, verses, verse 1, in a manner that's really characteristic of, of both Luke and Acts. Uh, Luke makes various attempts to locate the events he recounts in the timeline of Greco-Roman history, both in Luke and Acts. And here he relates Jesus' birth to the reign of Augustus and the rule of Quirinius as the Roman governor of Syria, which was the Roman province that would have included Jewish territory in that day. Now, there are, however, some problems with taking this at face value as a historical marker. For one thing, uh, it's supposed to have taken when, taken place when Herod the Great was alive, and mm -hmm. Herod, it pretty much, there's pretty much consensus that Herod died in, right. in 4 BCE. Right. And the other thing was that, that Luke dates the birth of Jesus to um, Quirinius' rule as governor of Syria. Well, Quirinius didn't rule till AD 6. So we right, got a 10-year right. discrepancy there. Right. And I think we're left with having to recognize that Luke is trying to locate Jesus' birth within a larger timeline of events, but that his references are imprecise here. Right, right. He's not really giving it precise chronology. But I think more importantly, as we've heard already in the Magnificat of Mary and the Benedictus of Zechariah, the mention of Herod the Great in, in chapter 1 and right. then Augustus and Quirinius right. here is meant to illustrate the point that in Jesus' birth, God is in the process of bringing down the powerful from their thrones and lifting up the lowly, right. as Mary said right. in her Magnificat in Luke one fifty two. Right. And, you know, in the, in the secular world, when you're teaching history, this history, you know, normally... We're dating Jesus back to four right. BCE. But what's interesting, I think, um, about this is, is I process it. Sometimes I tell my, my kids, despite the actual date of Jesus' birth, the fact that the calendar shifts and we start to right. look at Jesus as the king date, you know, in the year mm -hmm. of our Lord, mm -hmm. this is a this is really incredibly amazing because before the king dates were setting you know the right. historical right. the historical the year of the, the year of the reigns of such and mm -hmm. such so mm -hmm. that we the roman emperors now. or chinese emperors or right. whoever yeah and and some people would say oh well we don't even know the right date i'm like that's not what's important no. here it's this it's this whole shift into this whole new world yeah. and and that the modern calendar is now based on that well and in luke's narrative what we're going to see is the whole new world is being shaped by the fact that god is fulfilling his promises of yeah. redemption in jesus yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
So, um, yeah, anyway, but I do love, you know, the historian in me actually loves these references. They, yeah. Oh, I do too. It's And the same thing yeah. is in Acts. I, I love the, yeah. you know, Luke Luke brought, draws in certain events right. connect and connects them with um, with Greco-Roman yeah. figures and makes it kind of datable, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the problem comes in if we try to make too much out of them. And I try agree. to Try to give the, the, the New Testament more of an almost um, encyclopedic nature right. than it has. It is it is gospel. It is right. proclamation. Right. And and I think there is something significant about these figures that he does include, you know, um, because they are they're major they're major people sure. that, that that we can identify with and they could later on. I mean these are these are memori- memorizable names, mm-hmm. if you will. Um so yeah, I I totally agree with you and yet you can see why some people get tripped up with it. Surely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Luke continues by telling us that all went to their own towns to be registered, and Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. Now, um, we don't really know much about the practice of censuses in the first century, mm-hmm. but one, one point of a census by a foreign power was simply to demonstrate their power over right. conquered peoples. And I think... Luke means for us to see the juxtaposition of this exercise of Roman power with the birth of the one who would fulfill God's purpose. And it introduces sort of a tension between the powers that be, Mm -hmm. Herod the Great, Augustus Caesar, Quirinius the governor, and the sovereignty of God who had promised to redeem his people from all oppression, as Zechariah mentioned in his song in Luke 174. And so, you know, one of the things I love about Luke's infancy narrative is the themes are kind of woven in in a way that you you really have to pay careful attention to draw them out. It's they're not just they're not necessarily obvious. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, of course. And you know, one of the main reasons, of course, you do it is is not to demonstrate power, but to collect taxes. I right, mean, that's right. obviously huge, right. Right? right? You have to know who's there and what kind of what can I get from it? Surely. You know, why yeah. do I have it? And of course, you know, um, Judea is part of the whole breadbasket mm-hmm. um, relationship that gets down to Egypt. Right. So, and, it, and, and there's a lot of dealing with Herod and, and the, the Egyptian um, monarchs, Cleopatra, for example, and moving. So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on there yep. of importance of this territory. Yep. And so knowing who's there and knowing what they have is important. In some ways it was viewed as sort of a backwater and, and a very long way from Rome, Absolutely. but in other ways, in other ways it was very important because of the economic considerations exactly. of Egypt as the breadbasket yep. of the Roman empire. Yep, yeah. Yep. Yep. Now in this setting, then we see Joseph's only appearance by name in Luke's infancy narrative. This is the only place in the rest of the place of, in the rest of the places in the, in the infancy narrative, it's just the parents of Jesus. That's only, that's the only place you know, that Joseph comes out. You know, I had in. not ever thought about that. Yeah. This that's is the really only place interesting. Where, yeah. It's the only place where he appears by name. And as in Matthew, Joseph's role is to identify Jesus as a descendant of David. Mm-hmm. And this happens in Luke narrative, Luke's narrative in that Joseph takes Mary to Bethlehem, which right. Luke calls the city of David. Now, it's right. an interesting point that the Hebrew Bible calls Jerusalem the city of David. But Bethlehem is, is considered the city of David here. And so Jesus mm. is identified then as a son of David by virtue of his birth in Bethlehem. And when we talked about Matthew, uh, we talked about how with Matthew it's that Joseph takes Jesus to be his son, and that therefore right. makes him a son of right. David. In Luke's gospel, it's it's that Jesus is born in mm. Bethlehem, the quote-unquote city of David, according to Luke. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, doing the same thing, right? You're doing the same exactly. thing in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm still stuck on that Joseph's only mentioned once. I mean, that's just <laughs> such an assumption. Yeah. And I, something I don't think you pick up on. But, mm-hmm. but I think it also plays to what his role is, but not to overplay that role as well. He, he really doesn't play much of a role in Luke's gospel exactly. at all. Yeah. So then Luke proceeds to tell us that Joseph went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And this is the new RSV version. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the guest room. Now, you may be reading the old NRSV. This is from the NRSV updated edition. Mm -hmm. And I like this translation. I'm going to tell you why. Um, in a minute. But um, I do find it interesting that Luke really doesn't say much more about the birth of Jesus than does Matthew. I mean, he just simply, we learn that the days were fulfilled, literally in Greek, right. um, uh, for Mary to give birth. And I think in the context of Luke's infancy narrative, this likely refers both to the time for her to deliver her child, as mm-hmm. well as the time of the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. And so it has kind of a dual reference. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know that the new RSV says the time for her to deliver, you know, the time came for her to deliver her child, but literally it's the days were fulfilled. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think we should notice that, you know, because the, the here we have Luke again, sort of sneaking in a subtle reference, whereas Matthew is going to say all this took place to fulfill what was right. written by the, spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, or, or in Mark's right. gospel, Jesus preaches, you know, in Mark one fourteen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in right. the gospel. Um, uh, Luke is a lot more subtle than that. <laughs> and right. So it, this is really interesting, I think, the way he does this. Right, right. I agree. So then this language that because there was no place in the guest room in the new RSV updated edition might confuse some of some readers. We, we tend to operate with the image of Joseph and Mary arriving in Bethlehem late at night, calling at the inn, and because mm-hmm. of the overflow of guests, they're forced to lodge in the stables where Mary gives birth, and it's almost like, you know, they arrive there just in time for her to give birth. Right. I'm not sure that's really a very likely scenario. Right. For one thing, Bethlehem was not a significant enough place to probably even have had an inn. And and, and for another thing, the, the Greek term that's used here um, is kataluma. Um, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament for a guest room. And so mm-hmm. probably there are a couple of possibilities that are more likely. Probably either they were staying in what was what would, would, would have been known as a public can, caravansary, basically, which was would have been a place mm-hmm. where all travelers stayed under one roof or perhaps a tent. Or, and this, this is, I think, also another possibility, a real possibility, that they were staying with family or friends in a typical peasant home in which family, guests, and animals would all sleep together in the enclosed space on the ground floor. They would do a lot of their living and dining and eat, you know, eating and all of that on the roof. But when it came time for them to sleep, they would go to the ground floor, they would bring the animals in, and ev- everyone mm-hmm. would all sleep together in that mm-hmm. enclosed space. And, and so, you know, either way, whether it was a public caravansary or whether it right. was in, in the, a peasant home, um, I think due to crowding, there was simply no space. And right. so Mary's child was laid in a feed trough, which may very well have been the only place for right, him. Right, right. <laughs> you know... There's, there's so many comments that one could make about what you've just said. First of all, this is always such a big deal. And um, I've heard, I've heard so, 
how many sermons over the years, right? You have to do this one every year. On, no room on at making, the end. <laughs> well, not, no, I've actually heard this too. Oh, yeah. I mean, and so, but I think as you get too caught up about where they're staying, you're realizing, look, this is not the ideal situation for a birth of, of, of a woman who is not at home, which right. is already terrifying enough. Right. Um, and she's young, very young. Um, and we Does she even know the women who are likely attending her right. at that birth? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, just, just the very panic of that. So we, and and then the other thing is, you know, a lot of people get really caught up over the idea of the feed trough, which, honestly, is a pretty darn safe place to put a baby. Sure, <laughs> when you exactly. Think about it. You know, it's going to have a naturally kind of a natural cup to it that's not gonna let a baby so, i mean uh, you know roll off or... some people put their put their newborn in a in a um, in a um, dresser drawer if they don't yet have their yeah. bassinet or crib set up yeah you that know. used to be really common probably mm-hmm. not as safe as a as a as a feed trough, as a feed trough. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah but so those things um so anyway it's interesting but how many sermons have i heard with just this kind of obsession about where they're staying as, mm. as opposed to, and honestly, I was telling Alan this earlier, one of the things I've loved is having the female voice here coming mm. in, someone who's been with child, someone who's worried about whether the birth is even in a modern age of, mm-hmm. of, of how well it's going to go or not, not quite knowing what to expect as a new mother. Those voices I think actually are are more informative than this whole debate about whether it was a sure. guest room or a can- a caravanserai or or an inn. It doesn't it's really not. It the was bigger simply issue. N- she was not at home right. and she was in a place where <laughs> yeah. she was very likely yeah. out of sorts. <laughs> yeah, I, I I suspect when that baby came, she was just thankful to be under some kind of of protection from the elements perhaps outside. thankful to be alive as well yeah. i mean we could talk about infant mortality rates in that time Absolutely. But we could also talk about maternal mortality exactly rates. Yeah. exactly so anyway that's my my feminine there you go <laughs> you go girl perspective on this yeah <laughs> so then at this point the focus of luke's narrative shifts and this really seems to be the whole point of this passage is that luke shifts to the story of the shepherds and the angels and their role both of them shepherds and angels is to attest the significance of the birth of mary's son so i mean i mean and you think about this you know everyone who would have been reading luke's gospel in the first century would have assumed, okay, yeah, Jesus was born and lived, and, and he was a real person. He, they wouldn't have the kind of historical mm-hmm. considerations that we have these days, you know, looking back at dating it exactly when it happened. Um, but, but, and this is why, this is again why, you know, we shouldn't treat the Gospels as encyclopedia articles. They're right. interested in other things. They're right. proclaiming the message. And so they're fo- here Luke is focusing on the significance of the birth of Mary's mm-hmm. son. And so Luke tells us that the shepherds were living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, when an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Mm -hmm. Now, in the context of Luke's narrative, then, the point that it was to the shepherds that the angel appeared is found in the fact that they were peasants at the Mm -hmm. bottom of the scale of power and privilege. You know, a lot of people have, I mean, even going back in church history, some some thought that that shepherds were unclean. This was an unclean profession. It wasn't so much that as it, that that it was, you know, they were sort of at the bottom of the rung in terms of economic power and privilege. And I think we've talked about that before in in the podcast um, as we've hit other, other, other discussions of shepherds, but that... I do think we tend to kind of 
romanticize it mm-hmm. and oh those shepherds they were out and they saw the star and not realizing that these people are, are pretty cut off they're and mm-hmm. and they're 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 disenfranchised they're impoverished mm-hmm. you know they're they're i mean they're getting by by the skin of their teeth basically right. but i again i think the whole reason why Luke has shepherds is because it's a contrast. You know, here's the birth of the one who is going mm-hmm. to be Savior and Lord and Messiah, mm-hmm. son of David, right? And his announcement, the announcement of his birth doesn't come in palaces or right. to these high and mighty, Herod the Great, Augustus right. Caesar, Quirinius right. the governor of Syria. It comes to these lowest of the low shepherds in the field. Mm-hmm. And I be, I think that is intentional on Luke's part. Oh, I, I agree. I, and I love this. And I right. think that is a, there's, an, there's an important point here, that the birth of the one who would be the king of kings, the birth of the one who would be the savior and Lord, the birth of the one who would reign at the right hand of God was announced to the lowest of the low. And it, I love, it fits in with that whole theme of, of the great reversal that you find mm-hmm. in Luke's gospel. And I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then Luke has told us um, in his narrative that the initial response of the shepherds to the announcement of the angel was that they feared a great fear, literally. And, and in the Greek, it's, Ephabethesan faban megan. They feared a great fear. Um, and the angel of the Lord invites them to exchange their great fear for great mm-hmm. joy. I love and, that. And so, I mean, and, you know, the good news is going to be for great joy, karan megalain. So it's this, it's a very, um, uh, there's a very clear parallelism between the great fear and the great joy that, mm-hmm. that the angel brings. And the message that the angel of the Lord brings to the shepherds is meant to be good news of great joy for all the people. Specifically, mm-hmm. he says, to you is born in this day, Uh, in the city of David, a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And I would insist that we see the Jewish flavor Mm -hmm, of the good news announced to the shepherds. Now, while the title Savior and Lord were applied to Augustus and other Mm -hmm. Roman Caesars in the imperial cult, and while the the verb, um, you know, basically... He says, I have come to bring you good news. Well, it's the verb, euangelizomai. From which we, you know, have mm-hmm. the the cognate of the noun euangelion, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, and and that that verb and noun combination was also used by the Roman Empire to announce state events, right? But I, I again would insist that that the interpretive context for the announcement of good news here is found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, mm-hmm. and Joel Green actually points out some significant parallels with Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 in specific, with, with this partic- mm-hmm. these particular titles. And so, again, I, I, think it's, I think we see here that Luke is not spelling out this, this theme of fulfillment right. explicitly like Matthew does, but rather he's weaving the language of Isaiah into his own narrative because I, I think he, he sort of expects some of his readers to be able to get that, to hear these 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 resonances right with with the prophet Isaiah, you, you know, you brought up something. You know, I've been on this before because my you know my secular background, and 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 we did see Luke has more references to this kind of these kind of secular lords than mm-hmm. we see before. So this is an interesting. It seems to me it's just very carefully crafted. It is that, that it is. both themes could be heard depending on the reader. Surely, surely, uh-huh. surely. Well, and. We don't know who, who, where Luke's audience was, was, um, you know, 
it's hard to say, really. Right. It's hard to locate Luke's audience. I mean, it's been assumed that it was it was in in maybe Asia Minor or mm-hmm. perhaps even Rome. But I think we have to realize that almost, I mean, if not 100%, then maybe 99.5% of all Christian congregations in the first century would have been mixed. There would have been a combination right. of Jewish and Gentile um, uh, con- uh, Christians. And so you had this sort of tension between the the greco-roman culture and the jewish um, worldview going on all the time so now in the hebrew bible um the roles of savior and lord i think it's important to note they were specifically ascribed to yahweh Mm -hmm. in the hebrew bible but in that jesus is the messiah the other title here Mm -hmm. who was the agent who was going to fulfill god's redemptive purposes then these titles are given to Jesus. And, and of course, that becomes then the pattern throughout the whole New Testament. And mm-hmm. of course, I mean, right, right, that had right. already happened. That shift had already happened before Luke wrote his gospel. Right, you right. know, you see that, as I've mentioned before, already in First Thessalonians, which was probably the first New Testament right. document to be written about 15 years after Jesus' death right. and resurrection. And, and you see these titles being ascribed to Jesus, mm-hmm. titles that were reserved in the Hebrew Bible only for Yahweh right. are ascribed to Jesus. And, and, and it's a, again, you see this sort of almost, uh, Joel Green calls it an almost oxymoronic image in that you have these exalted titles. I mean, mm-hmm. Savior and Lord would, right. have been, would have been a fitting, they were titles that were ascribed to Augustus, right? Right, right. But at, here, here they're ascribed to a helpless baby lying in a feed trough right. in poverty and apparent powerlessness. Right. And, and the, the, the juxtaposition of those two images is intentional, I think, on mm-hmm. Luke's part. Um, uh, you know, again, it's sort of that implicit con- contrast between the powerful sitting on their thrones and the mm-hmm. lowly, and the idea is that God's purpose is going to exalt the lowly. Right, exactly, so, which is, and very, comes out very clearly in Luke as yeah. a whole. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, furthermore, although there has been some debate about the fact that the announcement of Jesus' birth is meant to be good news for all the people, I think we must see that this is Luke's version of to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Mm. I've mentioned perhaps before that um, the the Greek word is laos, and with just a couple of exceptions, throughout Luke's gospel and Acts, laos always refers to the Jewish people. Now, Joel Green wants wants to argue against that, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think he's. I think he's pushing it here. I think what we see here is that that the angel's message is meant as in the first place as good news for the Jewish people. But what we see, I mean, we see this already in the context mm-hmm. of the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew prophets, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, the prophet Isaiah. The fact that 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 the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose is meant to be good news for the Jewish people does not exclude the fact that the same good news is going to be great joy for all people mm-hmm. to the ends of the earth. Right, you know? right. And so um, I, I, think it's, I think we should note that you know, here we see right. some of the Jewishness of, of Luke's infancy narratives, as we talked about earlier this year. But but at the same time, you know, there is this sort of. Ap- mm-hmm. I mean, we know that in the full narrative of the in the in the full sweep of the of the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry of the life of the church, this this is a message of good news that is going to go to the ends of the earth. It's very interesting. I keep as I'm processing this in my brain because I I, I agree with you, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about. The progression of of the gospel, if you will, and how 
the gospel does progress, if you will, as this savior for the Jewish people, right? And 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 then how he introduces then and acts this further. So this there's this kind of this progression narrative that if you do what Joel Green does and ascribe it to all people at the beginning, you kind of take away that progression that Luke mm-hmm. develops for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a problem. Yeah. Um, but and then how you argue it, it, it does seem to make sense within. How the actual word and how the words used. So, well, and I mean that this this idea was already found in in the servant songs in Isaiah because you know I think about Isaiah forty nine six where where right. the prophet where where the Lord says of the servant through the prophet he says it is too small a thing for you only to be to bring salvation to my people you're going to be right. a light for all peoples right. you know I'm, I'm paraphrasing here right. that's Isaiah 49 verse 6 and and so you already have this there. this this movement of yeah what God is doing to fulfill his redemptive purposes for the sake of the Jewish people is going to impact the whole world mm-hmm. and 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 you know we see this not only in terms of the whole world of people, we see this in terms of the world of nature in Isaiah as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Joel, yeah, yeah. Joel Green can say this, uh, you know, that, that behind this is the Isaiahic hope of universal healing. Right. And basically that shalom or peace for Israel is tied up with shalom for the cosmos. Mm. And I, I think of the passage where the wolf and the lamb lie down together. You know, that, right, right. That's, uh, so, so we see this, we see this universalizing tendency already in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Yes, we do. And, and I, I my brain is just spinning with actually how very cool again, this is. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and really it's, it's kind of, it's very rich. I think it's got this depth to it that you're kind of pulling out for us. And even though we we don't want to push too far with the actual word, that the whole meaning really is, is yeah, if you will, underneath absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we need to get rid of the particularity right. of, the, of the gospel message here to the Jewish people in order to see the universality uh-huh. of its application to all people. Well spoken. Yeah. Good. So Luke continues then by telling us that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. And that's in Luke chapter 2, mm-hmm. verses 13 and 14. And I, I think this song of praise is meant to demonstrate that the appropriate response to the good news of the birth of Mary's son is to praise God. And this is an important point that we shouldn't overlook. As in Matthew's infancy narrative, God is the one who is acting perhaps behind the scenes, through the human and angelic angel agents to carry out his redemptive purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we might take that and say, well, well, yeah, of course, but I don't think Luke wants his readers, whether in that day or, or in our day, to take that for granted. This is, this is something that, that, that Luke is, is meaning to emphasize. One of the things that if you read Luke and Acts together, Luke is very much concerned to show that the, God's redemptive purpose, which goes back into the days of Israel continues with Jesus Mm -hmm. and then later on in the church and the story continues on in the ongoing story of the church even up till today. Right. And and this is something that's very much of a a central concern, a central theme for both Luke and Mm -hmm. Acts is the fulfillment of God's purpose. Yes, yes, absolutely. So then um, I think it's important also for us to note that despite all appearances to the contrary, here we have this helpless implant who can't speak, mm-hmm. lying in a feed trough, wearing strips of cast-off cloth. Um, Mary's son lying in the manger is already called Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And mm-hmm. I think it's important to note the language. 
For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, mm-hmm. the Lord, not who will be. Right. Who yes. Is. Yes. Who is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's really good. So then the declaration on earth, peace among those whom he favors, is problematic for several reasons. Now, first, there is a textual variant that made its way into the Textus Receptus and thereby into the early Mm -hmm. English Bible translations. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, which is, of course, the traditional familiar refrain that we know, right? Uh, That was found in the Geneva Bible and the King James Bible. And interestingly, the New King, well, not interestingly, the New King James (laughs) Version. The New King James Version. so interestingly. It's not interesting (laughs) because the New New King James Version made a decision to follow the Textus Receptus as if it were some sort of superior text to the critical text. And I I, I could go on about that. But anyway, that's the translation that you find in the Geneva Bible and the King James Version. The problem is, it was that the original reading, en anthropois eudokias, with the genitive form of eudokia, among people, literally among people of pleasure, or we should probably say among people of God's, good, of God's pleasure, uh, it was changed to en anthropois eudokia, with eudokia in the nominative case, goodwill toward people. Mm. So peace on earth, goodwill toward people. And part of the problem is it messes up the parallelism with the previous phrase, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. That's that's the parallelism, but it turns it into peace on earth, goodwill toward men, as makes that a a parallel couplet, Mm -hmm. and that messes it up. That's one of the problems. Um, Basically, you know, this 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 uh, version, this this textual variant was found in some some church fathers and mostly later manuscripts, and mm. really doesn't have any claim to originality. Now, second, there is a grammatical problem with the phrase "en anthropois mm-hmm. eudokias." the The genitive there, eudokias, is a bit awkward, and for a long time, it was thought to be a scribal error, or perhaps at best just awkward syntax. Mm -hmm. And Christy tells me that even Calvin is aware of that. I think it goes back to (laughs) patristic days. I think it goes back to patristic days. Calvin, Calvin's like, what with this weird genitive? I mean, he can't make sense of it. I I think that goes back to patristic days. I didn't get a chance to verify that. Um, But um, it was rejected in, in, scholar, in, in recent times, because there were no comparable phrases found in Hebrew mm. or Aramaic, but however, with the dis- discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, a similar phrase, bene ritzono, which is basically sons of goodwill or sons of his goodwill, uh, has been found in the hymn scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so that has also lent more credence to this. And, you know, to be sure... In anthropois eudokias is unusual. It's an unusual use of the descriptive genitive. You know, to say among people, peace on earth among people or for people of God's goodwill or God's mm-hmm. good pleasure. That's a strange phrase. That's a strange use. It's strange of, in the, English too, really. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And it's a strange use even in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, eudokia is used a lot, but, but this, is a, this is an un- unusual mm-hmm. use of that word. But thirdly, there's a theological problem. Some early English translations were influenced by the Catholic tradition and the Vulgate. The Vulgate reads, um, hominibus bonae voluntatis, so men of goodwill. Mm -hmm. And that's the way um, 
certain English translations translated. Peace on earth to men of goodwill. Um, uh, Wycliffe, interestingly, used that translation. Uh, the Douay Rheims translation, mm. uh, which is a translation mm-hmm. of the Vulgate text, basically, uh, unsurprisingly, uses it. I was shocked to find that J.B. Phillips, in his translation, uses this trans mm. uses, uses this in English translation. But my problem with this is theolo- theological. It suggests that they gain their peace yes. by their acts of goodwill right. toward others. And so that doesn't work for me theologically. Mm-mm. Some later translations have tried to express the significance of the original reading and Anthropos Eudokias among people of God's good pleasure, of God's pleasure, with the phrase, those with whom God is pleased or those who please God. Mm. And that's found in quite a few um, recent uh, translations, including the Message Translation, um, the ESV, and the New Living Translation. Mm. And again, I would say this isn't much different. This is just my opinion, but I would say this isn't much different in that it implies that God's peace is for those who somehow please yeah, God in yeah. order to get it. Yeah. And that's, to my mind, the problem with this is that this is not the significance of eudokia, eudokia or eudokeo, the verb in the New Testament, mm-hmm. both of which carry the idea that God is pleased to fulfill his purpose out of his own right, grace, right. Mm-hmm. period. And, and so for this reason, I prefer the translation of the new RSV, peace among those whom he favors, which is also shared by right. the NIV, um, Tom Wright's New Testament uh, for everyone and the common English Bible. Mm-hmm. I um, think that's better. And Calvin has the same discussion and that's where Calvin would mm-hmm. land, although he doesn't create his own translation, if you will, but he makes the same criticism of, yeah. of the text. Well, and to me, I think the meaning of this song of praise then is, again, remember, the point of all of this is to interpret the birth of Jesus and, and, and in this, the significance of this birth. And so the point of this song of praise is to interpret it as an act that calls forth praise to God in highest heaven and in typical biblical parallelism, mm-hmm. sort of the, the poetic parallelism that we're used to from the Psalms, Jesus' birth brings forth on earth peace for those on whom God bestows his gracious favor. Right. Right? And so you have you have this parallelism. Praise to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace for those on whom God bestows his yeah. gracious favor. Yeah. And so, works. you know, again... I mean, even that you could read from an exclusive point of view because God chooses to right. to bestow his gracious favor only on, quote-unquote, the elect. But in the context of Luke's gospel as well as the New Testament as a whole, I think it clearly points toward God's grace extending to all people. Right, right. And and uh, even Mr. Elect is going to identify that. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. Way yeah. to go, Calvin. Yeah, yeah. And I'll talk about that later. But there's this that continued tension in Calvin, which people don't know is there between this idea yes. of universalism and, yeah. and the idea of this... Um, of this predeterminism. In now, I really appreciate the fact that you've helped to enlighten us to that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's definitely there. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then Luke narrates the response. He, he sort of wraps up by narrating the response of the shepherds to the angels message. First, they go and see to confirm it for themselves in Luke two fifteen and 16, and that they went and found the child just as the angel told them serves as a confirmation and validation of what the angel had announced regarding Jesus identity. But then finally, Luke says that the shepherds in verses 17 through 20 um, um, not only praised God, but they also made known the good news that was announced by the angel. And, and, and I think Luke, 
is doing more than just telling us a story here. He's, he's giving us an example to follow. Uh, the idea is here that the appropriate response to Jesus' birth is not only to praise God, but also to make known the good news that was announced by the angel. But we also hear that Mary, for Mary, all these words mm-hmm. need to be treasured in her heart and further pondered in order to grasp their meaning. Um, and perhaps we could say that was a situation in which many of Luke re- mm-hmm. Luke's readers may have found themselves. Because again, if, if Luke was writing to a congregation in Rome, they would have been very familiar with some of these titles being applied to the emperor. And, and the news that this child born in, mm-hmm. in poverty uh, was, was given these exalted titles could have been um, something that they had to sort of chew on in order to understand. As Joel Green observes, what does it all mean is still a valid question. And I would say that's true not only for Luke's readers, but for us as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I I actually love that um, Mary kind of gets that. uh, Yeah. mm, That That, last claim there. That focus, that highlight. Right. That's of great significance there that he goes back to Mary. I don't know. I don't know this for a fact, but I think I've mentioned before that I speculate that one of the reasons why Luke mentions Mary in, in a number of places in the infancy narrative is because Luke had actually interviewed her. I think, I think that's a possibility. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I have not, I've actually never heard that. Yeah. I have never found that either, but I, I think, I, I think that may be a possibility. That would be amazing, but yeah. it, it could be right. Yeah. Um, um, but how, how interesting, um, I mean, who else could have told Luke that she she treasured and pondered up these things in her heart, right? <laughs> right. Well, good point. Interesting, yeah. huh? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to uh, give Christy a turn to talk a little bit about how Calvin approaches this passage. So, Christy, uh, take it away, please. Oh, thank you. So, it, I, as I've dug into the commentaries today, you know, this is the beginning of the commentaries, and so there's a nice introduction, which everybody ignores. And I thought, no, I'm going to look at the introduction, because I think it's going to give us a lot of background about this project of Calvin to harmonize the Gospels. And I... In learning that, we learn a lot about how Calvin sees the Gospelers. We learn a lot about why he's doing this. And um, I, think it, I think it sheds light on this important kind of interpretive time period, if you will, um, that bridges us from the ancient, you know, and kind of maybe the Roman Catholic tradition um, up to our modern sure. interpretation. Sure. So, um, I, you know, my question was, how does... What does Calvin understand about the telling of the story of Jesus? Um, and uh, again, this is at the beginning. And we also know, we've talked many times, his, this plan of harmonizing the Gospels. But what is interesting is he recognizes that these are different voices. And he asks then why are there these different voices? So what an interesting thing. That's a very modern question. It is a modern question. Mm-hmm. And yet, why is he harmonizing it if he recognizes mm-hmm. the different voices? And and so he, he tries to explain that a little bit too. Um, and as I said, when we look into Calvin's comments, we gain this insight into the early modern mind, both that I des- desire to understand the fullness of scripture, but also the assumptions that mark his analysis. Um, and so 
as I said, we've seen throughout the podcast um, that that there's this this kind of overriding theme uh, of Calvin. But today, in looking at this at, at, at Calvin's introduction, we kind of get his voice for the first time. Um, so what I love about this is in this introduction, we learn that Calvin is, it does see the human scribe in writing scripture. Um, because of these human writers, there are not only discrepancies, but also differences in the approach. So that's, you know, he's fully aware. These are not people that don't have the full story. They just have, uh, he does see them as slightly different lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants them to make sense in a general narrative, but he recognizes their limitations as authors. And that's really modern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as he says, these authors are providing a testimony to the revealed salvation, which has been promised of old to the fathers through continued succession of generations. In other words, the hope that was in the Old Testament scriptures is now realized in Jesus Christ. So here's that broad overview of scripture that's so important to Calvin and to us, right? Mm -hmm. And he's dealing at a time in the Reformation when people are asking again, do we need the Old Testament? Can we just get rid of it? So, Well, when you you think about Luther's approach of gospel versus law and setting them very starkly against one another, uh, this was one of the things actually that drew me to the Reformed tradition was this... um, this sense of continuity of mm-hmm. God's purpose throughout Scripture. Yeah. I love that about the Reformed tradition. Yeah, and, yeah, and I love yeah. the fact that Calvin sort of pioneered that for he us. He did, he <clears> did. <throat> um, and so it's in this this Old Testament um, and this the emergence then of the gospel, the, the righteousness of God is manifested. Um, the reconciliation with the world, says Calvin, was accomplished with the death of Christ. And furthermore, that all the promises of God are found in Christ. And the report of the resurrection where, quote, righteousness, salvation, and entire felicity are tied to Christ rising again. This is, he says, the best news, the glad tidings. So, because the New Testament attests to the fullness of Christ, the entire Testament should be considered the gospel. I love that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. like that. You know, you you consider you can you contrast that with 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 Luther because there were several books of the of the New Testament that Luther didn't even consider Absolutely. to be worth reading. He, right. I, I I think I've mentioned in my in my um, 1855 edition of the Luther Bible, my fam, brain family Bible, um, uh, James, Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation are at the end of his right. New Testament because he considered them to, them to be, to be not there. really gospel Mm-mm. they don't really preach the gospel right but calvin calvin sees this active work of the holy spirit coming through scripture mm. so uh, it, 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 so for him it's it, it's they have to be there um he is critical of those who look at the old testament as part of the gospel though so this idea mm. that there's this kind of predictive nature right. and we've talked right. a lot about right. this in other words we are not to interpret the prophets in terms of christ but rather to look at christ in terms of the of the the prophecy. So again, that's a fairly modern insight because you know, I mean, the the other view that that the Old Testament was predicting Christ, and so the fulfillment of predictions was was sort of an apologetic mm-hmm. um, tool that started as early as the second century in, exactly. in, the, in the Church Fathers. So, that had been around for a long time. So the, Calvin suggests this is very modern um, mm-hmm. and 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 pretty interesting. He makes. Um, uh, 
as, as I said, we've talked about it before, but he makes cl- cl- really clear that um, we should not look at the li- life of Christ and then find it in Old Testament. As he says, quote, Christ speaks quite differently that than the Old Testament prophets. So. You know, I think I would agree with him in some ways, but I would disagree with him in others. And I think we've already, we've seen, you know, I mean, the ways in which like, right, like right, Jesus right. uses um, right. Isaiah 61, 1 right. and 2 to, right. to, 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 as his mission statement, you know, in Luke well, or something like and that. And he doesn't, in this particular place, he doesn't expound on this comment. So mm. I'm just, you know, I'm taking a quote, but I don't have an argument to support right. that. But Well, I get what he's saying, though, about, you know, your, the approach. You approach it from the standpoint yeah. of, of looking back on the Old Testament prophets through Christ, not that, that the Old Testament right. prophets that's, were, that's were, were he's, predicting. That's what he's trying yeah. to say. Yeah. And yeah. that, I think, it, now, does he always do that successfully? Probably not. Uh. But the fact that he is thinking in this mm-hmm. this way, I think, is particularly interesting. It's it, way ahead of his time. It, exactly. Yeah. So, then he talks about the four gospel narratives, and Calvin spends quite a time, bit of time pulling John apart from the other three, which is normal. The gospel, as he says, the Gospel of John concentrates more on the character and influence of Christ, where the other three um, are more on the point that Christ was the Son of God, the one promised to humankind. So that's how he divides it mm-hmm. mentally, and then that even though Christ um, came, did not mean that he came to do away with the law of the prophets. So this is kind, and as they said this before, this is a big deal, um, but I had a quote here I wanted to tell you uh, that the Reformation era was that um, Calvin says that if we only understand Christ, we, quote, combine it with the former words of promise. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, we can only understand Christ as we, as we, as we read right. Christ through the lens right. of, of the right. things like Isaiah 61, right. you know, as, as the gospel writers do. So he then talks about the three synoptic gospels side by side. And um, I, this, you know, we've talked about this so often, but um, it, it is really, um, I, think, I think the fact that he did this causes us to pause at how it impacted biblical interpretation as a whole. And so at least in his era, um, and there's some interesting little asides here, they assumed that Mark was a scribe for Peter and that Mark was indeed um, received through, through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and that was something that went back to the early days yeah. of the church fathers. Yeah. That was a traditional um, church view of, the author, of, of, of Mark's um, as a gospel author. Right, you know? but Calvin is highly critical of Jerome, who claimed that Mark was a shortened version of Matthew. <laughs> and, well, that was, that was Augustine's view as well, that, that Matthew was the first gospel, right. and well, Matthew, Mark shortened it. That's know. where it sits. As Calvin says, Mark does not even follow the same order as, as Matthew <laughs> and takes a different approach. But here you're seeing what might be, if you will, the benefits of trying to look at these side mm-hmm. by side. And mm-hmm. that's what I love, mm-hmm. um, because even though most of us have a, a text that does this, you know, we have these side by side gospels. Yeah. yeah. Um, Actually, this was fairly new in the Reformation in some ways. Well, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, Eusebius had a, well, had a had a table of of parallels that went back to his day, right. in the fourth century, and and I don't know to what extent that would have been available to Calvin, but uh, that I was don't something know, that and was, I know it had been done before, but this was not being done in the Roman Catholic tradition. At right, this point. right. That, right. I think that's the point I'm trying right, to make. Right. Um, Calvin believes that Mark never saw Matthew's Gospel. He says the same for Luke. <laughs> Which, I don't know if that's fair or not, but I think he says he closed, that the differences were how each writer wrote 
what he considered to be true and arranged it the way that he thought best. And, you know, I thought to myself, when I taught the synoptic problem, which is essentially yeah, what he's doing. why why are, are the Gospels so similar and yet so different? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not very different from the way I put it, you know, was that, you know, under the under the influence of the Spirit, each of the Gospel writers, you know, had their own emphases that mm-hmm. they wanted to call attention to. Yeah. And again, I think it's a pretty interesting and, and very modern. It is a very modern approach. Even if it had disappeared, it's come back in, some mm-hmm. of these things. So, um, in other words... He's really dealing with the idea of lenses to understand one truth. Surely. Um, and I just thought, it, wow, this is really sophisticated at this time. Yeah, I would agree. And yet, while he recognizes this inhuman invi- involvement, he goes back to say that it was all under the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, his words, quote, The Holy Spirit has given such wonderful unity in the diverse patterns of writing. Yeah. I mean, that's a statement that I could have made myself exactly. you know, in, 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 in these days. I think, I think that's, a, a, again, a very much ahead of his time kind of observation. I thought so. Yeah. Then he defends his work to harmonize and recognizes that some people aren't going to like it. Um, but he points out that people are naturally doing this. And at least um, with the new scriptures avail- available, there's really no one that has done it of recent. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wanted this to be accessible to people all in one place, this harmonizing that people were naturally trying to do. So in other words, he's trying to take on this huge, huge project to provide um, at least some type of, of unified analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, in particular, um, he gives credit to Martin Bootser, which had done quite a bit of this in the Reformation era. And, the, and of course, we know that they were colleagues and and, and both of the Reformed tradition. Um, and as I personally reflect on it, I think um, this academic exercise needed to happen before we could, could dive into the kind of exegesis that we pursue today, which is to analyze these individual books and the specific voice of those unique authors. I mean, it would be really hard to dive into that if we didn't have some kind of something that could precede it that we could see that the, these pull apart these differences, right? So, well, and again, as I when I used to teach the history of gospel studies, you know, there's a very real sense in which it all in in modern New Testament studies it all begins sort of with the quest of the historical Jesus, right? Which is the same kind of thing that that. Calvin is doing he's trying to come up with a story of Jesus right. you know the, the history right. of Jesus right and, and 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 out of that then comes some of these other emphases like form criticism right redaction criticism right. or a literary the, and then the literary approach that is now really what is probably the most current approach <laughs> to the gospels at this point in time although most gospel uh, scholars uh, approach it from a literary point of view, they're not going to be totally ignorant of form critical and redaction right, critical right, issues. Right, right, exactly. And, of course, and the form criticism relates to how the, the oral traditions were shaped as they were passed along. Right. The redaction criticism relates to what, what, he's talk, what Calvin's talking about here, how the gospel writers themselves right. shaped the traditions. Right, and, right. And, and, you know, so, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I think that's right. right. And, and, you know, I wonder to what extent... I wonder to what extent some of the early New Testament um, historians even made use of this or how much they were aware of, of Calvin having done this or if they just rejected it because it was a harmony. I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, that would be definitely a, something to look into. But obviously, Calvin is 
not using these catchwords of modern scholarship Surely. because it's Surely. not there yet. It's and so that's yet. what's so interesting is he's starting to ask some of these questions that modern scholars are going to be able to pull out and say, and I'm going to yeah. use this form. So here he is in this really cool, but it reminds you why this is mo- early modern, mm-hmm. not modern. Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, but it also reminds you why it's important in this whole tradition, if you will. Um, as I said, I think it, it reminds us why it's really part of the hist- historiographical narrative mm-hmm. um, than it is an outdated interpretation method, which some people would say, oh, I want us in a Calvin. He's completely outdated. Yeah. But when we look at reformers in this light, we could recognize the contra- contribution in the development of biblical analysis and see how um, these interpretations continue to impact us today. Sure, sure, and, absolutely. Um, you know, some of our evangelical groups are trying to throw out all these contributions, and they're trying to go back to the Bible itself, sure. and, and they're just—they don't even aren't even able to see where their biases come in. Yeah, you know? that's true. Um, well, and there are other there are other evangelicals who will say that. Um, Calvin and the other reformers were sort of the final word and they've already answered all the questions and we right. don't need to go beyond well, that. Well, that's a good point. I didn't put that in there, but that's another problem, right? Yes, is that they're, is. they're still stuck in the 16th century yeah. and, and it's, 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 it's reformed and keep reforming. You have yes. to keep the questions yes. going. You yes. have to keep looking at how the what the scripture but says today. We don't today. throw out our heritage in order exactly. to be in order to do the work that we exactly. need to do today. Well, and to have some kind of <laughs> funny idea that you aren't that you can come to scripture and not have any bias anyway i I was telling alan earlier um calvin always refers to angels as he is in masculine and and i was (laughs) and i just i just know that angels are women except for gabriel maybe and i'm like how what a weird assumption you know where does that come from i mean Mm -hmm. it must be we decided it must be from very childish kinds of mm-hmm. images of angels being having these you know kind of dresses on and looking female. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but it it really struck me of a bias that I didn't even know I had. <laughs> well, and, and that's true for most of us. I mean, you know, we, we all have our biases, and it's not that we have to get rid of them. It's that we need to become aware, aware of them, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I still go with female angels, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> My nativity set has female angels. Uh, so i did just a tiny bit with the reading from today which is obviously just luke since it's you know this the story today is not in matthew or mark but my question is how um how how did luke contribute specifically um why why did he include this information Uh, one of the things that is in in the themes is providence of god that luke wanted to show that what seemed to be happenstance by mary and joseph um and caesar's call to be registered and all those things was really god's providence Mm -hmm. at work and it's where the um prediction of the centuries came to pass um and how god worked within the kind of human dirtiness in the human history to have this come alive um and and calvin you could tell had this great i i wish i could explain how but you could tell in the, in the writing he had this kind of great awe for how providence well works. and i mean i can understand that because it, for me it's that whole sense of that sweep of god the fulfillment of god's redemptive purpose and and that is something that that really inspires awe in me as well yeah and 
I think it's important to know that we don't see the determinism often given to Calvin here. Um, you know, mm-hmm. because if it's determinism, oh, yep, that came to pass, it meant to happen, blah, blah, blah. No, that it's, it's richer than that. As he says, quote, if Mary had not been compelled, she would have decided to stay home. <laughs> but what an interesting piece of yeah. agency there that Calvin mm-hmm. says, and this is a direct quote from him, instead of this idea that uh, everything's predetermined, which is sometimes... Which is sometimes That's put on Calvin. attributed to Calvin, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so it's interesting combination of using the selfish act of Augustus to transform it into God's favor, favor, and it shows us that even Christ's birth came about through God's agency. Yeah. Um, so another another piece in here of why Luke might have had had this to show how Christ came into the world as as human flesh. Um, to show the humbleness of his birth and the foolishness of God. So he quotes uh, Corinthians there. Sure, sure. Um, he had also used shepherds as heralds, and again, in- inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he does acknowledge that Luke puts it in there, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Showing us that uh, we must be called to look at the world through God's eyes, not through human eyes. And yeah. the human eyes then would have had... what. Alan was talking about before this being announced by kings and and filling this kind of role of, of heraldry instead of this humble birth. Yeah, you would do, you don't think of you don't think of the poorest of the mm. poor as being the heralds of the birth of a king. Exactly, um, but and the shepherds are to be the first, but the promise is for all. Um, interesting here that we get that tension of Calvin between um, uh, specific salvation and universal salvation. Um, that he actually will say in here that in this announcement, the reprobate, the reprobate will recoil at the sight of God. Mm. So there's that, that, that in there, that kind of predestination language in there. But at the same time, he goes out of his way to say, but Christ has come for all, all who will open themselves to him. So it's this interesting, mm. I, I really liken it to this. There's, Calvin seems to have an idea that there's a freedom of humanity that God gives us to, 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 to turn away from God. And that's where the human agency is. Mm. So, and that's where the reprobate end. So yeah. it's not, he, he allows for more choice than some people think. And that choice, you can, God's grace is irresistible, but somehow you resist it. Sure. It's, uh, well, and I'm and not I think, sure I'm comfortable hundred percent with the language, but yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think Carl Barth develops that in the sense of, you know, he, he also has the freedom of men, but he sees the freedom of God as overriding the freedom of men. Right. In, and, and, and so that he will say uh, something, the effect of, you know, we can't claim uh, the promise of universal salvation as if somehow, you know, we have any right to claim it, but we're commanded to hope and pray for it. Yes. <laughs> and that, that actually sounds a lot like Calvin, yeah. actually, that yeah. and developing that idea. And it's this interesting balance. And I think, I think Calvin really gets that we want to be very ultimately assured in the truth that we offer yes. there. And yes. I think he's trying to explain it's a little bit harder than that to grasp onto um, that that God's sovereignty and God's space over that is is still ultimate and mm-hmm. and and God will God will make 
whatever's happening in God's world happen. I, mean, I, I think God's purpose right. will triumph that, in the that, end. Thank you. That's yeah. a better way to say it than what I'm than how I said it. Um, but sometimes the agency of individuals. I mm-hmm. mean, we give too much credit to that. And of course, mm-hmm. what Calvin emphasizes is the whole body of Christ. And the you know, if it's not accomplished through one person, another person will be called up to do sure, it. So, sure. Um, so, and then finally, uh, Calvin addresses what is meant by peace, that this is not an outward peace. For example, the kind of peace, it's just, we're not, you know, fighting a war anymore, but the earth becomes one of peace when people are reconciled to God. Mm-hmm. And so that again, harbors that universal salvation concept. If everyone's reconciled to God, then peace would be achieved. Sure. Right. For Calvin, um, it does not mean that humans will live without conflict as our sin will draw us to that conflict. Um, but that Christ's reign is above above human beings and that it will reign. That, again, God's providence will, in, in, in the long run, God's kingdom will reign supreme. Um, it's not in itself receiving grace. In other words, um, here on earth, peace, peace among those whom he favors is not an effect of grace, but that God has granted human beings freedom of God's favor. That idea of freedom again. So mm-hmm. it just, <laughs> in other words, um, that they are not bound by works. Mm-hmm. So it there's a lot of theology in in what he's putting in here. But um, um, you know, the final thing I put on here was that the he discusses the use of shepherds as exemplars of the faith, and and I, he found it interesting that the angels become almost secondary to really the force of faith that comes through the shepherds mm-hmm. as example. Sure. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I have for you. Okay, thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and in our third segment, we're going to dig into uh, a thought that Christy had, sort of um, maybe talking about why we should actually take seriously preaching this text on Christmas Eve and or Christmas Day. Um, um, And so, Christy, share with us your thoughts about that. Sure. Well, I know many, many churches out there, and I think it's easier sometimes for us as pastors not to be preaching on on Christmas Eve. Uh, A lot of times, of course, people don't even show up for Christmas Day. So, you know, it's often a, a, a wonderful service of lessons and carols, but there's no message. Um, and I think we miss an opportunity because it's one of the few times that we get people that maybe aren't churched in our churches. And so when we go and we just read the, the scripture with, with, with no message, with no meditation even, I think it just reinforces the assumptions they already have. I mean, they're not listening careful enough, carefully enough to pick up the nuances like we went over today. And so they're going to come by with the, oh, I, I just heard a nice Christmas story. Isn't that nice? But they don't know how to take that and apply it um, to their lives and, and to enlighten their lives and, and to maybe say beg them to come back to the church. I mean, it just sits there as, oh, yep, I've heard it again. That's nice. So I... I guess my big thing today is maybe rethink this as your greatest opportunity um, to be a, a, a truly a witness as a, as a pastor. Surely, surely, yeah, um, yeah. You know, in in my perception of people's understanding of the Christmas story is sort of through the lens of Charlie Brown Christmas, and I oh, yes. I don't mean to to. 
um, uh, appear snobbish or arrogant, but I, I mean, I grew up with it myself, and I, you know, I think that's just where our culture is. Absolutely. You know, we have that we have that sort of cultural notion about Christmas, right. and you know, Linus gets up and and recites this passage right. you know, from memory, um, but. Um, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I think whatever preconceived biases, whatever preconceived notions that we already have coming into a Christmas Eve service, most people are going to walk away with if we just do a, a, a festival of lessons and carols, or if we just do a musical program, or if we just do a special program, or even if we just read, do the readings and don't provide some interpretive mm-hmm. um, um, meditation, some sort of interpretive um, homily. And that's what the sermon is meant to do, is to provide mm-hmm. um, um, an interpretive um, approach mm-hmm. for people to be able to uh, get a handle on on what is the message of right. the word of the Lord here. What is what is what is God trying to say to right, us? Right. Now, you know, myself on Christmas Eve, I have tried to stay with pretty simple me- meditations, right. right? Because of the crowd, right? You know, I, I I don't go into sort of my most um, I guess detailed preaching on Christmas right. Eve because of the crowd, but. I, I don't think that means you can't take one of these angles like, I mean, just think about Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Right. I mean, what a great sermon that could be. Right. Here's right. this helpless, you know, baby born in poverty, right. and yet he is the one right. who truly is Lord, not Caesar Augustus, right. not Herod the Great, right. you know, not any of these other people who, who had the trappings of power. I mean, that in, little, right. that in of itself could be a wonderful meditation. Right, right. Um, um, you know, glory to God in the highest mm-hmm. heaven and on, on earth, peace to those right. on whom God's favor rests, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be a wonderful meditation as right. well. I was thinking on the coming with fear and the be of great joy. That, yeah, that, that kind exchanging of just, great fear for great joy. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. we live in a time of great fear. Exactly, and, exactly. And that could really speak to people. Right. I agree. So there's some themes in here. To me, I you know, again, I, I love it when, when the... the the, the New Testament writers weave sort of the promise of God's redemptive purpose from past, you know, prophets like Isaiah into their narrative. And so that could be something as well. You could talk, do, do a story, you know, you could, you, do, you could do a meditation about, you know, this is God fulfilling his purpose through the human mm-hmm. agents, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and others, the angels and right, the shepherds, right, right, right. you know, yeah. even perhaps through Caesar Augustus, right, right. You right. Know? So, I mean, these are all possible meditation that I think, I think would be really meaningful to somebody. And I don't think it would have to be a long, no? drawn out thing, but it would allow people to maybe reflect on what they've heard um, instead of just, oh, I heard it again. You know, it was nice. Um, and uh, and not that that can't have some meaning, but I, I think I think adding a short meditation on it could really be... Surely. A, a, just a really good choice. But I don't know how, you know, I, obviously today you do something, if this is a tradition at your church, just to do the lessons and carols to have to, to take yourself out and say, I, and, and I'd like to do a meditation. Even right? if you just make it a five minute meditation, exactly. you, know, you, you provide some interpretive context for people to be able to maybe have a way to hang on to some of the message. And like you say, mm-hmm. I mean, for, for there are going to be a lot of people, I don't know about 
all the churches out there, but my church is one where people come on Christmas Eve. Oh, there yeah. Are a lot of people who come here who never go to church any other time. Exactly. Christmas Eve. Come once a year. And, and so, you know, I mean, it gives you the opportunity, like you said, to really preach the gospel to them in a way that you're not going to have any other time. Never, never any other time. And, you know, yeah, you're not necessarily going to get them back until next year, mm-hmm. but you have maybe opened their ears and their hearts in a way that they haven't heard before. And even that I think is a wonderful reach out. I, I sometimes I, I, the secular world is hard on our faith. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people have a lot of assumptions about the church um, yes, that they, they haven't, that they make because of stuff from outside. And so they come and they just hear, oh, that was nice. But you haven't really pushed against all of the secular stuff that's in there by, by opening up the assumptions that they have, even if it's a nice story to really say, and this is why, and this is why we're here. And this is why you need, um, you need to be here. Mm-hmm. And it could be something very small, um, but that was the message I needed to hear. That yeah. was the welcome I needed today. That was the, oh, the beautiful story reminded. But if we don't, if we don't push it a little bit, I think mm-hmm. I think it just remains kind of stagnant. Okay, been there, done that. You know. Well, it's it like I mean, it's like they say in some circles: if you don't make the ask, if you don't ask them to do something with it. They're not necessarily right. going to go there on their own, right. and this this is where preaching, you know, as application comes into into play. Mm-hmm. You know, we we want to contextualize the message, but then we need to bring it down to home in terms of, you know, how do we see this contextualized message impacting our lives, and what do we see people doing with this? I, I don't mm-hmm. think we have to be exhaustive in terms of trying to figure out every application, right. but I think we can be suggestive right. in terms right. of 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 you know, right. offering some options and, and give them some directions for their own yeah. thinking. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, you know, I was thinking as, as we started this, that some of the the people that are, oh, well, see, they don't even have the dates right. And so this doesn't matter. <laughs> or, oh, they don't, you know. <laughs> this, That's not the point. Yeah, th- They're missing the point, mm-hmm. right? They don't understand. Mm-hmm. They just don't have the background because they've heard that from somewhere else. Oh, well, Christmas wasn't really on December 25th. And so therefore this is, and yeah. So what? That's not the point. (laughs) Yeah. And I, but I think, and I think, you know, a lot of people come at it and and it's almost like some people have this Charlie Brown Christmas thing, but some people look at it as a Charlie Brown Christmas story and they say, this is just a kid story or this really doesn't have any relevance in my life. And I think that's where the meditation can, can really draw in. This is the relevance of the gospel. Yeah. Even for an adult person who, who maybe, um, is very much a part of this secular age that we live in, which we do. I mean, things have changed in such a, in such a drastic way that the message of the gospel, um, you know, you were really swimming upstream when we're trying to preach the gospel to people who are coming at it from a, a mindset of, you know, I'm just, I'm just in this for what I can get out of it. And I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go for everything I can get. And I'm going to, you know, my, my, ability to thrive in this world is is basically comes down to what I can do for myself mm-hmm. exactly and and or what you can do for me it's and then we, we sort of we, we sort of 
drawn sort of a, a ceiling. We've sort of re, re, re-established the firmament in the heavens, so to speak, so that there's, there's nothing above there that's going right. to actually influence our lives. We just, we're just on our own. Exactly. And, exactly. and um, so, you know, we, we have a challenge of, of trying right. to break through that firmament that people have established I in agree. their own minds and, and to say, here, look, this is what this is about. Right. right. Well, and, you know, I see that we see this all the time, obviously, when folks are coming to funerals and they haven't mm-hmm. set foot in a church for 30 years and, and they don't know how to handle their grief. They don't know how to handle the loss and they don't know, uh, they don't have any faith basis for what they've just experienced and they can't cope. And, and, um, well, there's hardly any room for God in, 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 in um, um, what we might call a postmodern worldview. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, but, even sneaking in, you know, this one, this one Christmas, you know, homily might be the one that just triggers someone to be able to either return to church or at least have that space, open that space for faith a little bit, yeah. to come in. Yeah. I, it's like, it's like the parable of the sower, you know, we, 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 we toss out our seeds and we right. never know where they're going to land. It's not, it's not really our responsibility as to where they land or what they do once they land in the right. soil. It's our responsibility to toss out the seeds. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I feel like if we just do lessons and carols without, mm-hmm. Without that message, we are not fully tossing out Surely. the seeds. Yeah, you know, and and actually, my plan this year, since since December twenty fourth, Christmas Eve is on Saturday evening, and right. then we have church on Sunday morning. I'm actually going to take both of my sermons on Saturday night and on Sunday morning from this passage. I'm going to emphasize different aspects of it, and yeah. I, you know, we've identified. Th- three or four themes right. or more that that someone right. could 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 uh, could work with uh, easily and I, I think that might be um, you know if you I know that you know the practical challenges of trying to prepare sermons are can be really challenging right. especially at this time of year especially with back-to-back preaching Saturday night and Sunday morning right but uh, I think that's an entirely acceptable approach to, to take I the same passage idea. and focus on different aspects of it. I love the it. idea. Yeah. I really do. But yeah, and I think it's, I think it is a time, I know it's so easy to say, oh, church wants to listen to Carol. I can get out of sermon. But yeah, I think right? you're missing, I think you're missing your call. Yeah, surely. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.